You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and later today um, there are going to be Uh, The president is going to go back to the White House and sign the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, and and look, I am a conservative Republican. Far be it for me to want bad things to happen in America. I do not want bad things to happen to America. I just think that spending more money at a time of high inflation is a bad idea. Now, you know, we'll just keep talking about it. But right now we're going to talk about something that is really what people are concerned about. Um, uh, Dr. Alonzo Plow is with us right now from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. You can follow them, RWJF. He's the chief science officer. And they've just done a study, a poll, looking at the impact of high inflation rates, especially on black, Latino, and Native American households. And in my commitment to try to talk more about especially Native American because I think we don't understand as much as we need to understand related to uh, Native Americans in America. We want to get as much information as we can. That's where you start. So, Dr. Plow, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm happy to be with you. Thank you. So, overall, what led you to kind of look at this issue? Well, you know, the United States has been a really difficult period economically. Uh, uh, it's reflected, uh, you know, in inflation, uh, some problems in COVID, during the COVID pandemic, lo- loss of jobs. So we've had a difficult situation for everybody in the country, high housing markets, all of that. But this survey wanted to understand uh, the particular experiences of racial and ethnic minorities in this uh, larger problem of economic stress in the country. And as you, as you said, uh, these problems are even more serious for black, Latino, and Native Americans, but sometimes twice as much more serious. Yeah, and do you also see a connection? You know, I've I've had... I kind of have the assumption that education and economics is what separates us. And whether you're in the lower end of the white community, black, brown, Asian, whatever, that these things impact you more heavily. But what you found in this study, which I thought was very interesting, is that a very large percentage of black and Native American families reported having not enough emergency savings. Um, It was a little better in Latino communities, but it still was much worse than among white adults. And you saw the same thing Uh, That kind of disparity as it related to being able to afford food, which is really kind of a basis, right? Everybody needs to eat. So you've got that's kind of the number one thing. It's putting gas in your car and being able to buy your groceries, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think what this survey shows is that, you know, in the best of economic times, uh, these these are folks who are living at the margin. And, you know, when you look at um, the, the day-to-day life of people who are working minimum wage level jobs, uh, they're always going to be kind of on the edge. Uh, but just as you pointed out, when you get something like COVID and you get something like, uh, 
of the inflation, it's going to take uh, kind of a borderline situation and tip you over the negative edge. And, that, and that's what you're seeing in these data. And the point you raised is so important, food insecurity, not having enough to eat, having to make a trade-off between being able to pack a healthy lunch for your child and uh, and bus fare to work. I mean, these are the kind of trade-offs that happen when there's unfair impact of uh, of inflation uh, on on uh, on populations, and I would just mention one more thing you said because it's so important: education. Um, you know, if you have a history of not having good education in your community, a disinvestment in your school system, uh, those are the kind of things that are going to make your economic life course even much more difficult. Yeah, what was the study? I think it was done years ago, and I hope I quote it right. That basically, if you fi- at least finish high school. You put off having children till you're at least 20 years old and you're married when you have those children. Your your chance of being impoverished is drastically reduced. And, you know, to most people, that seems like a very low bar to achieve. But to or I should say to many people, but it it really is a community effort. And one of the questions I generally don't use the questions that people send me on these pitches because I like to read the information and come up with my own questions. But I loved this one about what government leaders and community members can do to support communities. Uh, because I think those are two separate things that you've got things government can do, but that takes a while before you see impact from that. But community is so important in all of this. What can community organizations and community leaders do? I, well, I'm, I really appreciate your read. I can tell from your questions, you read all this. This is really good. Um, and I, uh, I think it, it's so important to understand what happens. I mean, all, these problems all become very local. Um, and so it's very important uh, to, to look at the local context. So what can, what can folks do? Uh, we talk about education. Every community, all community members just need to, uh, the school boards are very accessible. They, we need to make sure that the education systems in our community are strong and fair um, and are preparing our children for uh, a productive economic life. Um, and that's something that happens at the local level. Uh, and it's very important for community members to support that and um, uh, pass the kind of local level legislation and support so that all communities have strong schools. Um, also, um, there's a real, a real part of, of well-being is community connectedness, um, particularly across different kinds of groups. At a local level, this is a, um, a not a us-them kind of issue, but a we issue, um, you know, poverty. Uh, and communities uh, are recognizing what pulls us together and how we need to rise economically together is a major part of, I think, the community dynamics of, of what can support uh, the changes that need to be made. We're talking to Dr. Alonzo Plow about from the uh, Robert Woods Foundation. It's RWJF. He's the chief science officer. And they also looked at in this data affordable housing, delayed health care, and we've talked a lot about food and inflation, but, you know, it's, it's, it is an important issue because while there has been a real estate boom and, and for at the average person who owns a home, uh, it's been great for them. I mean, it's been harder because of property taxes, but if you're selling a home in this environment, you're doing really well. But that creates a, a push on the lower levels where there's not as much affordable housing. Everything becomes expensive. I mean, even in our small community of Gainesville, rental has become dramatically expensive. It's very hard to find what entry level is. And I got to tell you, Dr. Plow, uh, I'm 63 years old. Entry level is a 
very different number than when I was starting out. And so it's very difficult when you look at the housing part of this. You know, many years ago, they did a study where they said, well, money buy happiness. And what they found is, is that beyond the basics, it doesn't buy happiness. But if you don't have enough to eat, a roof over your head, appropriate health care, and a good education, then more money will make you happier. That's true. If you're if you're living at the margin, more you need to you need to get up to that level. That's a really good study. It says uh, for uh, an average family um, um, of, of a couple of kids uh, around seventy, eighty thousand dollars. Above that, uh, you're not going to buy any more happiness. That's what those studies seem to show. <laughs> uh, but but uh, you know, you might buy more things, but things don't necessarily make you happy. Um, but it's the other end that I think is really important. Uh, as I mentioned, folks who are uh, minimum wage jobs, working two minimum wage jobs, they're just not going to get anywhere near that point. So uh, it, it's it's really around um, um, trying to counter the forces you just mentioned. I just would mention that rents have been rising at even a higher percentage per year than the housing price. Yes. The rental market all over the country, out of control. It is. It is uh, because so many people are buying up things corporate. I I mean, look, I don't get me on my soapbox because I am a free market capitalist. Okay, but I have seen what's happening with a lot of things getting bought up in the rental market by conglomerates. And then that's driving the rental prices up because they can wait to rent it. They don't have to turn right around and rent it the way the average person that used to build wealth. Right. They might buy a house, rent it out. And then they would build wealth that way. And that was a way to build wealth that was open to people at all levels of the economy, right? But that's even being taken away. You're exactly right. Large corporations are coming in and uh, buy, they're buying up the, the distressed properties, the, the bank repossessed properties where people can no longer afford their houses. And then they're putting them on the rental market. And then they're, uh, they're, they're charging escalating rent. And that makes it even more difficult for people to buy entry-level homes. You see that all across the country. Absolutely. That combined with the... Re- yeah, go If ahead. people want to know more about this study, how could they get that information? They can go to Robert, uh, rwjf.org. The study is there on our website as well as a lot of other information about what improves health and well-being uh, in communities across the country. Dr. Alonzo Plough, thank you so much for your time this morning. This was a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show. And uh, joining me right now is Leah Aldrich, who we like to get together with from time to time, uh, and who is the kind of Kickstarter to an organization called Women Lead Right. And we're so happy to have you back with us. Leah, how are you? Good morning, Martha. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. So we're getting, you're welcome. So we're getting ready to get past that Labor Day. You know, in a couple of weeks, we'll be past Labor Day. We're already seeing elections heating up, but we're going to really see them heat up uh, in this final sprint to the general election. What are you seeing through Women Lead Right as far as the outreach that you're doing and then how women are responding to the issues of the day? Oh, thanks so much for asking, Martha. So as you know, I represent conservative in-town and suburban women. Now, we're less than 90 days from our midterm election here in Georgia, 
And after the last midterm elections in 2018, Lindsey Graham famously said that the Republican Party had to address its suburban woman problem because it's real. And that's what Women Lead Right does. So we are reaching out to find common ground with these so-called independent suburban women voters. Now, we've been in the field with them with polls, and we've been reaching out to them directly. And we know what the issues are that move them to the polls. It's issues like educating our children on the three R's and, and not political agendas like queer theory. And it's about being safe in our homes at night and when we pump gas and, you know, heck, when we, when we unload our groceries at the, at the grocery stores here in Buckhead. Um, and it's being able to afford that gas and those groceries and our school supplies. Excuse me. So these are the issues of the day for Georgia's women. And we've been demonstrating at Women Lead Right that the Republican Party is the party leading on these issues. And we've made um, some head some headway with this group, Martha, if I can share quickly. Um, our organization reached out to women in four metro counties. These are women who are formerly Republican voters, but that had not come out to vote in a primary since 2018. So that's, I mean, excuse me, 2014. So that's eight years that these women sat home. Now, our work reaching out to these women, this is a woman-to-woman initiative. We brought 50% of them back to the polls in the primary, and incredibly, 82% of them voted Republican. So our message is connecting, Martha, but like you said earlier in the show, we've got to remain super vigilant because the Democrats are doing everything they can to change the subject big time with Georgia's women. So and I don't want to keep talking on and on, but I, I do have a story to tell you and your listeners, um, if I may. Sure. Um, Martha, so I have a daughter, Isabel, who's 22, and she's in school out of state. But she's registered to vote here in Georgia, like most most students are, uh, if they if they were raised in in Georgia and still have as their primary residence uh, their parents' home. And she, as a 22 year old woman, has received three mailers, and I bet some of your listeners have children or grandchildren that are, are are girls. They've been receiving these mailers to three three days in a row. And I'm going to read the the cover of this mailer, which has got a a white woman who looks to be about 28 years old, and it says, quote, I knew Brian Kemp signed a six-week ban on abortion. I didn't know he supported forced pregnancy even in the cases of rape and incest. That's a pretty, it's a pretty shocking, I've got three of them. I'm staring at them as I'm speaking to you. So we've got, you know, we've got a, there's a fight right now for these women voters and the Republican party has been winning on the issues that they most care about. And the democratic party is doing everything they can to change the subject to, to, to ensure that Georgia's women voters are single issue voters and that they're going to vote with them on the issue of abortion. 
Well, and the thing is, too, and I mean, just PolitiFact just came out and said that Stacey Abrams' ad about this was inaccurate. Um, and she, in fact, is not running that ad anymore. The one with the multiple women talking about how uh, Brian Kemp is going to make miscarriage illegal and going to prosecute women if they have miscarriages and all that kind of stuff. So there is, you know, that's something I work on all the time. But I wanted to ask you a question about the crime thing, because last time we talked, we talked about how big the issue of crime is. And the Atlanta mayor has, you know, has tried to make some inroads in this area. He he gave some very definitive statements last week where he said that there are they are going to prosecute people that are committing these crimes and that if you commit a crime, you're not going to just get put back out on the street again. Um, is he making any headway? Because he's your mayor. Is he making any headway? Um, as a woman who lives within the city limits, there's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a suburban women voter. I'm an urban uh, Republican woman voter. Uh, we don't feel any safer in our homes now than we did before. In fact, Atlanta has just reached 100 homicides last week, earlier than we did the year before, the year before, the year before, the year before. Right. And, you know, it, it's a constant trial. How we're, you know, my children live in fear. I've had to teach them over and over again. You know, how do you pump gas so your car won't be taken? How, what do we do at night if you come home? How, I mean, this is a, you know, I feel like I'm living in a, in a, I mean, well, not a war zone, Martha. That would be a bit dramatic, but, but, um, I am raising my son, my high school son, completely differently than I even had to raise my daughter, you know, who when she was home with me, you know, six or seven years ago. So, you know, I'm sorry, Mayor Dickens, but, um, you know, it's a little too late. Quite frankly, Martha, um, he he did uh, also announce several weeks ago his public service uh, priorities and the top three priorities had nothing to do with funding the police. Um, or funding 911 uh, operators so that when you call 911, someone answers right. in the city of Atlanta. I mean, it's, if you dial 911 right now, if I did <laughs> in the city of Atlanta, I, it would go to voicemail. Right, right. I mean, I don't know how less secure, you know, you could feel um, as an in-town resident than, than to know that, that help is not on the way. Yeah, that your nine one one call goes yeah. to voicemail. Yeah, that is pretty bad. That's pretty bad there. So, um, yeah, I think you're right that the Democrats see that they're not winning on the on on the economy. They're not winning on schools. They're not winning on inflation. They're not winning on all this stuff. They are trying to get these one issue voters. But my sense is, and I could be completely wrong, Leah, is that that the voters that are one issue voters on abortion, um, if they're pro abortion. They're already voting Democrat. If they're if they're pro life, they're already voting Republican. I don't think it moves the needle that much. Well, you know, my concern is that we've been moving the needle with these women who left our party. Honestly, out the you know the margins are razor thin here in Georgia in some right. of these big races, and we can't afford to lose women that lean right. Right, but, but may not agree with us on all issues. We need to keep their focus on those those three issues I talked about: security, education, and the economy. Honestly, the economy in our polling with these women is by far the number one issue. And Martha, to your point, when we polled in January, uh, abortion ranked last 
as the issue that was most important to these voters. I've got another poll in the field right now. It's not back. When it is, I'd be delighted to share it with you and your listeners um, to see how the how the uh, mood has changed. But Martha, you're not opening your mailbox to these mailers, right? And they continue. They continue to say he's going to investigate. He's going to uh, allow prosecutors to investigate women who miscarry. All three of them have that claim on them. And they're pretty powerful and they're pretty scary. So um, you talked earlier in the call about some stuff that happened to you in, in, in your race. Um, you know, I will share with you um, that I ran for state Senate here in this community and my opponent, Jen Jordan, is running for attorney general as the Democratic nominee. And she has pledged, even though she wants to be the attorney general for the state of Georgia, and I'm a lawyer, Martha, and for those who aren't, the attorney general is is really the, the the most powerful lawyer that represents the state of Georgia. And she has claimed if she wins, she won't enforce the, the heartbeat, so-called heartbeat bill, um, which is a pretty shocking thing to sort of decide that that you, as the, the lawyer for the state of Georgia, would not enforce a law that had been duly passed by elected legislators. I mean, I think ultimately law. that is her <laughs> downfall. I mean, if in this climate that we're in today and, and what people use to decide who they're going to vote for for attorney general, I think if you say you're not going to enforce the law or you're going to selectively enforce the law, I mean, California might be there. But George is not there yet. <laughs> listen, listen. It's like she thinks she's judge and jury and that she can declare laws unconstitutional just because she says they are. Well, well and, you know, and this, my this big like, issue with her that I think is going to come up, and we've invited her to be on the program. She's been on the program once, and I've asked her this question and haven't gotten a good answer, and I'll continue asking it. Is it on very important issues that it is important to know how the attorney general feels, uh, a person who wants to be attorney general feels, but also in representing the people who have currently elected her, she missed a lot of votes in the last legislative session, a lot of controversial votes in the last legislative session. And to me, that's not leading. It's not leading when you won't take a vote, when you've been elected to take a vote. Well, I would agree. I think um, I can't speak to, to where she was or, or why she wasn't on the floor uh, when it was time to cast those votes. But it is often the case, and you know this to be true, that votes are missed by people who don't want to go on record because they're seeking, you know, higher office. That's right. Um, and I, and I criticize Democrats and Republicans who do office. it. If you, This is why I don't like it when people run for one thing when they still have when they still have people they represent i know that i've lost that battle and that trains out of the station but it's because you don't the people who you represent get poor representation in that final year that you're serving because your focus is not there well i i 100 agree with that and i'll tell you when i ran for office and this may or may not be this may be a controversial thing to say for some of your listeners but i didn't duck out of any debate I attended every debate, every neighborhood forum, and I answered questions because it was my job to do that if I was a candidate. Right. You know, I needed pe- people had to know where I stood and had to I had to be willing to go on record so people knew who they were voting for. Um, and I believe that's essential, just like I believe it's essential to be to be ready to cast votes and to lead. Uh, you know, politics is a bare knuckled, dirty business, and you've got to be tough enough to do it. Um, but 
you know, you can't be above the law, Martha. And, you know, this kind of I'm above the law or I won't enforce the law. You know, that's what got, like you said, these blue cities and blue states that's put them to their knees. You know, this attitude that the law doesn't apply to me. I'm going to be a sanctuary city or I'm not going to enforce laws that have been, you know, I'm going to allow folks to have, you know, shotguns in the middle of Atlanta and create a zone, um, you know, just for us. Um, You know, people die. Uh, when when individuals decide they're above the law. So, so you know, I think it's important for our party to be, you know, the party that's uh, a law and order party. It's certainly important for citizens that live within the city of Atlanta for law and order to be restored. Um, and so, you know, that that's, that's definitely an issue of importance to the women that I represent. And honestly, the Republican Party needs to stay, stay disciplined on these issues so we can uh, win uh, win back the uh, House and, and maybe the Senate in a few, a few days. Well, we just got this text in from Lisa in Murrayville, and she said, Martha, the ad of the women saying they could go to jail for even having a miscarriage is still airing on Channel 5. I've seen it at least five times this morning while watching the news. It's really sad. My daughter is very upset by this ad and confused mm-hmm. as to what rights she has as a woman. I wish they would take that ad down ASAP. And I agree. And and as I understood it, that they that ad stopped on August the 8th. Maybe they re did it but the problem is with political advertising it has to be it's very difficult for a radio station tv station to deny an ad um because it's political speech and we should be able to do it when they're inaccurate if it's been proven to be inaccurate but sometimes even we don't have the power to do that um leah thank you so much for being with us today if people want to get involved in women lead right how can they do that absolutely thank you for having me martha um, I'd like to invite, you know, any women and men uh, to go to check us out at womenleadrightga.org um, and join our work. Uh, we have a plan and it works. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon, Martha. Absolutely. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and uh, Bill Crane is here with me this week for Crane's Corner. And, you know, it's kind of like we're at the center of Trump world again uh, in Georgia, Bill, where we have, of course, you know, this event that happened last week at Mar-a-Lago, which, interestingly enough, has united Republicans, independents, and some Democrats, because it, I believe it was an overreach. I think they could have handled this with subpoenas and... Uh, you know, we'll see what what everything how everything shakes out. But we've got Rudy Giuliani testifying today uh, in federal court. And I mean, not federal court, uh, Fulton County uh, grand jury. And now we know he's a target of a criminal investigation. Well, um, those your listeners are pretty attuned. But Rudolph Giuliani came down to Georgia after the November elections and testified before a special hearing, first of the state Senate, later of the state House, and offered up some testimony, which we would assume, since he has been a U.S. attorney and was under oath, at least he believed was true at the time, but he showed edited video footage from the Fulton County Tabulation Center at the State Farm Arena. He showed um, you know, what he considered to be ballot harvesting activity around uh, drop boxes and and gave testimony that in many lawmakers eyes at the time solidified evidence 
that there was significant election tampering in Georgia. When you view all of that footage, and I have in its entirety from 7 p.m. on till the, the morning the next day, you can better understand what was happening when they temporarily shut down tabulation and rolled the suitcases, as they were called, the ballot tabulation boxes that are locked back up from underneath the tables and resume counting. But, you know, you can, you've been around, Martha, you can, with a television commercial, you can selectively edit footage into whatever you want it to look like. Right. So, um, but as that all wore on, um, along with Sidney Powell, Rudolph Giuliani became one of the primary faces of the Trump campaign's efforts to change the results and overturn four states where the votes was clo- were close, but Donald Trump lost, and subsequently to that lost the um, electoral college. And so, I, you know, I'm not Fonnie Willis, the um, Fulton County DA, but it seemed to me for weeks that they've been kind of drawing a series of concentric circles closer and closer to the Trump White House. And someone in that circle, in the campaign circle or in the president's administration, was going to become a target. We knew that the uh, the alternate elector slate had been identified as a potential target, but for Burt Jones, who was removed from that circle because Funny Willis hosted a fundraiser for his opponent by Judge Robert McBurney, who's uh, overseeing these proceedings. Um, you know, we're going to have Lindsey Graham, the, the U.S. senator from South Carolina, who also placed a call to the Secretary of State. He's going to be coming down apparently to testify. So, yeah, we're staying kind of the center of the 2020 looking backward election universe, but part of that also is continuing to keep Donald Trump in the public eye by some Democrats who want him to be the boogeyman in chief and the, you know, essentially the 2022 midterms are about voting against Donald Trump. Donald Trump's not a candidate. Donald Trump's not on the ballot. He may declare before November for another run for the White House, but even if that's the case, he is not a candidate for any elective office in the United States at this time. And even some of those people who are his supporters think, as more becomes clear of what happened on January the 6th, that the president and his advisors overstepped. You know, and and I just think that that, I mean, what do you think ultimately about the Mar-a-Lago raid? I know we don't have the affidavit. I know I think they overstepped if it's only about the Presidential Records Act of 1978 and whether or not the president took classified or formally classified documents out of the White House. Um, we don't have that um, affidavit that was sworn to the judge, the, the magistrate who was also no friend of the president, who gave the permission for the warrant. We have the warrant. And the warrant basically talks about documents that went out of the White House. There were multiple attempts previously by the Department of Archives, a meeting at mar lago in February, followed up by a meeting that didn't go as well as in June. And there were actually subpoenas issued before the raid. But I do think still, as you've said previously, there were other options available than to raid the White House, raid the, if you will, the president's residence uh, while he was in New York getting ready to to, uh, give a deposition in another proceeding. And there is a situation where, I mean, I've dealt with uh, on a small level, you know, how federal stuff gets moved around. And GSA came in, which is, uh, I think it's called government um, um, something, you know, it's, it's, I think it's called GSA and I could be wrong uh, about that, but they come in and they pack everything up and they, there is some involvement by government agencies deciding where things go. So, That's correct. And, and I also think that part of the challenge here is the, what is apparent, apparently disparate treatment from what happened with Hillary Clinton, who clearly violated law regarding handling documents or emails 
being private on a private server, her Blackberries and former laptops being physically destroyed with hammers. We know that happened, and that investigation was open and closed and open and closed during the 2016 contest. And then Hunter Biden, more recently, the FBI had that laptop that for a time the White House or the, the Biden administration was saying didn't exist. They, at the time, they already had the laptop with the incriminating evidence on it. So you can't have two different standards of prosecution and two different standards of law enforcement based on partisan politics, no matter how dangerous you think the political ideology of your opponent is. Well, and I think the thing that gave me kind of a laugh was the whole talk about quote nuclear secrets and <laughs> and i thought that what was funny about that is if we are printing that kind of stuff out on hard paper in the 21st century then we have bigger problems than whether somebody took a box of something to mar-a-lago those codes are also supposed to be changed if i understand it either daily or weekly so that they can't be <laughs> um the the other yeah you're correct and and also president what struck me as a bit odd is president trump has not historically been a fan of paper or documents, or reading. In the latter half of his first term, he had uh, the Secretary of State give him orally the daily national security briefing. Um, it was not a secret in the White House that if he disagreed with advice he got in writing, he would often tear it up, flush it down the toilet. The uh, The White House staff were having to you know, fish out official documents and sometimes paste them back together. Um, so, you know, it's, it is interesting that, that so much did leave with him, but presidents have libraries, and presidents set up libraries in part with their personal correspondence as well as their dealing with world leaders, gifts, etc. So, I, you know, it could be just as simple as what you just referenced a moment ago is being inattentive on which files and which documents came out. I, you know, there's not a lot of benefit to taking national security secrets out of the White House. It's not like he's going to sell them on the open market. And... The Roger Stone file, I can sort of understand, because he did want there was going to be a pardon made of Mr. Stone, and you know some of that information about their personal relationship, I can understand it. And I don't think that's national security. That's correspondence between he and Stone's attorneys. Yeah, I think it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out and how this does impact, because we've got to be very careful not to let this election be made about Donald Trump, because there are plenty of things. Inflation is still high. Gas prices are still high. While the Democrats have had a couple of good weeks, they still have a lot of bad news coming out between now and the election. And not much else is going to get done in Congress, and we're going to have another continuing resolution budget. So there are all kinds of things that we need to focus on rather than whether you know you like the president or not the former president right and you know liz cheney's loss of her election notwithstanding it's clear that the president still has supporters in significant corners of this state i don't think he can be the nominee i don't think you should run i think he will um run again but it we shouldn't be weaponizing or using any agency of government to design a political outcome so my sense is that if Donald Trump does run, which I think he probably is going to, I don't think Ron DeSantis runs even if he wins big in Florida. I think he waits uh, and sees and to see what's happened because I can't see the two of them going at each other. Uh, maybe they will. Maybe when you look in the mirror and you see a president looking back at you, it'll completely change your behavior. Uh, but... I think it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out because it'll be very hard for me to support Donald Trump as uh, the nominee. Now, if he is, you know, if he is the nominee of the Republican Party, then I'm going to have to rethink. But I'm going to be looking for somebody else. 
I think it's time for a generational change for both parties. I don't know that we'll yes. get it. Uh, I agree with you. I don't think Ron DeSantis would run against Donald Trump in the primaries. He could make a late entry because I don't think things will go as well for President Trump as he thinks. One of his biggest challenges logistically is he's got about a quarter of a billion that has been raised in kind of two blocks of account. One is the legal defense fund around trying to overturn the election results and any possible prosecutions that came there. And the other are his multiple PACs. But none of those can be used for presidential campaigns legally. All of those essentially funds would be available for other purposes, but they couldn't be used to fund a presidential campaign. And so as soon as he declares and begins an exploratory committee, a lot of that money is, is to some extent off limits for his travel and the other things that, you know, Donald Trump made money in the White House. I'm not talking about his salary. He gave that back. But Donald Trump's business interests made money. He made money. And I think that's always kind of part of his decision-making. And he would have to table or put someone else in charge of quite a substantial amount of money that's already been raised the sooner he gets in. That's why I think the theory that he might step back and be a kingmaker and he has had better luck with his endorsements since Georgia because it was looking a little shaky after Georgia. Uh, he's had better luck with his endorsements. Of course, he's picked safer candidates, uh, you know, in most cases. I think I think Sarah Palin, you know, getting into the uh, the you know, the final election, it's not really a runoff, but they do rank choice voting in Alaska. So it's a little bit different. So I don't think that was a stretch for him to support her. Uh, I don't think supporting against Liz Cheney was a stretch. Uh, I think that was expected. So it'll be interesting to say, but your point about generational change, I kind of think that if you're over 75, you shouldn't be running for anything. And there it's are a, a lot of Democrats. Job. It's a very demanding job if you're yes. Bill Clinton's age when he got elected. Yeah. And when you watch President Biden reading his teleprompter cues, smile sincerely, look at the camera as it's it, – it's an embarrassment for him. It's embarrassing for the country. And, you know, I think both parties ought to be able to reach a little deeper into their talent pools and find someone who's upcoming, not just run elder statesmen. Absolutely. Bill Crane, thank you so much for being with us today, and we'll talk to you next week. Take care. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com, and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller. 